up, church? How are you guys doing? It is great to get to be here with you guys. It's a joy, uh, and I am delighted because I trust our God wants to speak to us today. I trust that when his church comes together, he speaks to us in a unique way. He speaks to us through the spirit, through the word, through each other, through the sermon, and through the slice. And I love Rachel's slice. Uh, she'd mentioned this in the city service, too. She, she, maybe a little bit of an insecurity of feeling like, oh, my slice is kind of plain. I grew up in a Christian home. It's a miracle. Every single one of you who know Jesus, you are a miracle. The fact that you are here right now, the fact that you know Jesus, the fact that you have this relationship with him and he has rescued your life, you are a miracle. And it's cool, whenever someone gets up here and testifies about the miracle that God has done in their life, we just get to celebrate and see our God is real. Our God is alive. He's not a philosophy. He's not an idea. He's actually here. And he is worthy of more than just church attendance. He's worthy of more than just casual observance. He's worthy of all our praise, all our worship. Not just through the worship songs we sing on Sundays, but through the words that we say, the things that we do, and the lives that we live. Our worship flows out of our heart posture towards him each and every day. And this is exactly what the book of James has been showing us, right? Week after week, we've heard James tell us this is what Christian worship looks like. Not judgment, but mercy. Not prideful, but humble. Not worldly sorrow, but repentance. Not just being a hearer of the word, but being a doer of the word. And all the while, as trials come our way, we can have joy. And my guess is, somewhere along the way, maybe you've thought to yourself, yeah, I want to do this. I want to apply what James is saying to my life, but James has this uncanny ability to expose what can be so hard for us to stomach when we first see. We find that our will and our zeal and our strength lack what it takes to consistently live out scripture. And maybe that's been discouraging for you at times, but James's heart in doing this is to push us to the gospel. He's not pointing us to a burdensome to-do list. He's pointing us to a person. A person who desires not only your actions, but your heart. In one sense, a to-do list would be easier, but a covenant relationship with God, that's different. A relationship means I could live to be 100 years old. I could walk with Jesus for decades, but whenever I read the book of James, I'm still going to feel like God isn't done with me. Because God sees us as we are, he loves us as we are, he accepts us as we are, he, but by his grace, God does not leave us where we are. He invites us, not into perfection, but into a gospel romance. And that romance leads us to an obedience that our willpower would never dare cultivate. And the reason we want to emphasize this relationship before diving into the passage today is because our passage in, in James focuses on prayer. And if we don't see our romance with God, if we don't see our relationship with him, we might view prayer as a sterile item on our spiritual to-do list. And so let me pray for us. Let me pray that we would keep relationship on the forefront as we dive into this passage and open up his word. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so wonderful, so good, and so amazing to us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you that each one of us here who knows you, that 
we're a miracle that you saved us. You made a way for us to know you where there was no way, and you brought us into this relationship with you. And thank you that you speak to us, that you delight in speaking to us, and you delight when your kids come to you and speak to you. And so, Lord, I just pray that during this time that you would speak to us, that we'd be able to put everything else aside and engage with what you have for us. Lord, I know that you want to speak into our lives. I know that you have life to the full available to us. And, Lord, I pray that we would take hold of that and walk in that boldness and joy and confidence. We love you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in our last section of James today together. Uh, If you have a Bible, open up to James 5. Uh, We'll start off in verse 13. Verses are also going to be on the screen for you. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So this is a pretty complex passage, and there are many ways that someone could preach it correctly. But the focal point in this entire passage is prayer. In six short verses, prayer in some fashion is mentioned eight times. And prayer may seem like an anticlimactic way to end this letter from James, because if you ask most Christians, they'll say, yeah, I know it's good to pray. But James doesn't give tepid encouragement to pray. He uses rich language to describe the heart behind prayer. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. And the Greek for suffering used here, it's a catch-all phrase, and it connotates everything from the most difficult trial to the smallest uh, trials that you're experiencing. Nothing is too big. Nothing is too small. The Lord wants to meet you in all of it. And the Greek word for singing praises here is salo, and it's where we get the word psalm from. And psalms are just prayers that we literally sing to God. In fact, This verse points to why we sing songs at a worship service. We don't sing so we can make the church feel like a rock concert. We sing together as a form of prayer to our God. So James ends by saying, keep this in mind, church. God is inviting you at every moment, in every occasion, to come to him, to cast your burdens onto him to sing praises to him, and to be part of this relationship with him. And in theory, that sounds great. It may even sound simple, but it's hardly easy. I've been really encouraged by Shaw as he's been uh, preaching through different sermons in our James series. Uh, If you've noticed, every couple weeks when he preaches, uh, he'll try to be focusing on what the passage is teaching and how is he living that out in his life. And it's been really convicting for him and really encouraging for me to hear about it. And so he's had moments where he shared about how hard it is to not be judgmental or how hard it is to not be impatient. And so I thought that would be great for me to do with prayer this week. And so I just wanted to see what my prayers look like and what are the things that I was praying for. So a few days into the week, 
I looked over my list of things I had been praying for, uh, and I noticed I pray a lot for my own comfort. I pray a lot for my health and my finances, my time and my success and my relationships. And it's not a bad thing to pray about those things because like we said, God invites us to pray about everything. But if you would look at my prayers, you'd see less of a romance or dependence or joy in prayer. And it would seem more like I'm speaking to God and he's like some kind of cosmic vending machine. So I was humbled. In that space, I just asked God to soften my heart. Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Fill your heart, fill my heart with what fills yours. I don't just want stuff from you. I want to actually know you. And it was beautiful to see God answer that prayer in suffering and in joy. So I'll start with the suffering. Midweek, my uncle passed away. And of all the men in my family, I felt closest to my uncle. I remember I lived with him for a season of life while I was working in Akron. And I would get off of work and I'd get back home around 10 p.m. or so. And my uncle would usually be in bed by then if I wasn't living with him. But while I was living with him, he actually would stay awake until I got home. And then he would ask me about my day and he'd share stories with me about our family, stories I'd never heard before. And I really cherished that time with him. And so when my uncle passed away, my grief was twofold. The first was, I'd lost a man who modeled to me something that my heart craves to hear. There are small ways that he communicated to me, Vivek, you're likable. You're valuable. I actually enjoy spending time with you. But the second way that my heart was grieved was that my uncle didn't know Jesus. And because of that, I know I'll never get to see him again. Both those losses broke my heart. And in that space, I got to see that they actually break God's heart also. And so I prayed. I prayed with a sweetness and a dependence I hadn't experienced throughout that week. And the joy I experienced also came midweek. So Eric and I found out a few weeks ago that we're pregnant, and we found out midweek that we're going to have a little, wow, that's a, yeah. Sonogram photos are so goofy, right? Like, it's like a blob that they just blow up. So, but in there, you see little Erica Jr. So we actually haven't picked out a name, but we, if you have any suggestions, write it down on your Connect card. We'd love to hear it. Um, but when I found out about this little girl, I was filled with a bevy of emotions. I don't know her. I don't know what she's going to do. I don't know what she's going to be like. And yet, I already love her. Maybe she's going to be brilliant like her mother. Maybe she'll be sensitive like her father. Maybe she'll enjoy watching football with me, and she's going to know more football than any of the other boys her age. <laughs> Maybe one day, I'm going to walk her down the aisle on her wedding day. Maybe I'm going to get to see her fall in love with Jesus and follow him. But whether those things happen or not, I want her to know I love her, I'm her biggest fan, and I'm going to fight for her. And it's strange to desire these things for someone that I've never even met. And so I found myself praying. I found myself asking God to help me love her in the way that only he can. And when 
Prayer became less about a list of things to make life more comfortable for me and more about God's heart for the world around me. It changed how I prayed. I prayed for myself and for other people still, but not just for our physical needs. I prayed that despite circumstances, that we would just catch a vision of what God might want to do in us. Now, I know death and birth are two extremes that might draw us to prayer. But don't miss the point in the extremes. Prayer is not a ritual. Prayer is not a routine. It's not psychological self-help. Instead, prayer directs our hearts to acknowledge a powerful reality. Our God is a God of redemption. Our God is a God of joy. And our God stopped at nothing, not even death on a cross, to bring us into a relationship with him. And he is right here, right now, with you. And he delights in you right now. And he invites you to join him in his mission right now. And you get to be a conduit for his redemption and joy on this earth. And so every instance in your life, be it immense suffering or insatiable joy, is kindling through which your heart can be set on fire for him through prayer. This is what you're made for, church. You were created for a relationship with your heavenly father. And prayer helps us see who God made us to be. Prayer helps us see who God made us to be. All right, so we've only done one verse so far, so I'm going to have to pick up the pace a little bit with these next few verses. Verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the, same, in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So this is a classic text used from the epistles about physical healing. If you're sick, get some oil, call the elders, and have them come pray for you. And sometimes people fixate on the oil. Why oil? What kind of oil is it? What's the purpose of this oil? So shout out to any essential oil enthusiasts out there. You may be particularly interested in what this passage is saying. There are two main possibilities for the purpose of oil here. The first is practical. Oil was used back then for everything from toothaches to paralysis. And so maybe James is saying, come to the sick with prayer and medicine. God uses both of them. Another possibility is the oil is symbolic. In the Old Testament, oil was used as a symbol to show that something was being set apart for the care and purpose of God. Other people focus on the healing part and how healing is done, and they might even treat it like a formula. Verse 16 says the prayers of the righteous are effective. But we've all had prayers that haven't been answered the way we want, right? Maybe you've prayed for people to even be healed and they weren't healed. I heard a story just this past week. Over a hundred pastors gathered in Buffalo to pray for one pastor because he had cancer. And that pastor still passed away at the end of the week. So what does that mean? Does that mean that none of those hundred pastors are righteous? If we turn our eyes to scripture, we see several examples that refute that idea. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul prays for his friend Trophimus to be healed, but it doesn't happen. In 2 Corinthians 12, 
Paul prays for his own healing, and God explicitly tells him, no. We even see Jesus, fully man, fully God, pray twice in Matthew 26. He prays for a way to bypass the cross and still be redeemed, still redeem the world. And you can't get any more righteous than God in the flesh. And he had his prayers answered with a no. So clearly from Paul and Jesus, we see that being faith-filled doesn't mean that all your prayers are going to get answered the way that you want. So let's not read conclusions into the passage that aren't explicitly stated here. James is simply saying this. The Lord heals, and our prayers get to play a role in that healing. And any healings you may see, they just point to the coming resurrection and reconciliation we have with God. And on that day, he will remove once and for all all the causes of sin, sickness, and death. So the main crux of this passage isn't the oil. It's not the formula of how to get healed. James's main concern is the church being filled with men and women who pray faithfully. And we see that more clearly in verse 16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. So in verse 14, the elders pray for healing. But here we see the whole church is praying for each other. There's no mention of needing a special gift or a spiritual gift of healing. There's no mention of prayer being limited to just pastors or just super Christians. As 1 Peter 2 says, if you are a Christian, you are a priest. You are righteous before God because of Jesus. And just like God used people to bring about physical healing through prayer and medicine, we see here God uses people to bring about spiritual healing through prayer and confession. Because when we confess sin, it's cathartic for our soul. And confession not only impacts our spiritual life, but our physical and psychological life as well. So one of the biggest mistakes we can make health-wise is living like the physical, emotional, and spiritual aspects of our life are totally separate from one another. The body, mind, and soul are so interconnected that they can catch each other's diseases. And scripture backs up that claim, but so does medical research. NPR interviewed this renowned neuroscientist named Dr. David Eagleman, and they wanted him to share some of the discoveries that he'd made. And in a nutshell, Eagleman's research revealed this. Your brain does not like to keep secrets. In fact, the more destructive you feel a secret might be to your life, the more stress hormones your body releases. And these stress hormones are tied to cancer. And so what this secular physician makes a case for in the interview is that confession is important. You need to be open about your life or else it will slowly kill you. And then he also mentions that confession leads to deeper relationships with other people. I think that's so cool because Dr. Eagleman's research just confirms what James is telling us right here. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you may be healed. King David expressed likewise in Psalm 32 when he originally kept quiet about adultery and murder in his life. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So David was exhausted keeping sin a secret. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't eat. 
And if he can relate with David's words in Psalm 32, if you're keeping sin a secret, we just want to exhort you, stop. Just stop. Stop hiding because it's not worth it. Let's not pretend that we're stronger than we actually are. Confession is truly costly. It takes courage to be able to bring sin into the light. But if you're keeping sin a secret, it's already costing you more than you can imagine. You're killing your relationships with other people. And you're allowing a chasm to grow between you and God. And it may be caused by porn. It may be self-harm. It may be an eating disorder. It could be a billion things. All these things that are destructive in our life and in our heart and in people's lives around us. And so, yes, Jesus conquered sin and death. But they still exist in the world right now. And no matter how little or big they feel to you, they're trying to destroy you from the inside out. And the only way to kill them before they kill you is to drag them through the light of God's grace. Because just like every other command in James, you cannot win this battle on your own. You need help. And if you want rest, if you truly want real rest, there are a few things as freeing as not having any secrets. Do it for your relationship with God. Do it for your relationship with other people. And do it for your own life. We love you. And we want you to experience true healing, true freedom, and true joy. And confession is the doorway to experience all of those things. So we just want to ask you, is there anything in your life you need to bring to the light? Is there anything, as I've been talking, that you're like, yeah, this needs to come out into the light? Even if I don't want to, even if it's hard, I need to bring this to the light so I can actually experience healing. All right, let's wrap up. Verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it didn't rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And I love the story of Elijah because it's so beautiful and it's so redemptive. So Elijah is this prophet. God sends him to Israel. And this is at a time when almost everyone in Israel is opposed to God. And so Elijah shows up in 1 Kings 17, and he calls out the king of Israel for turning from God. And as a sign against the king, as a sign against Israel, he says, God will not let it rain here for three years. And so obviously, the king was not a big fan of Elijah's at this point, and so he sets out to kill him. But Elijah escapes into the wilderness, and he hides. And through those three years of the drought, God sustains Elijah. In fact, there are literally animals that God brings to Elijah that carry him food and water. And so even as Elijah is going through immense suffering and immense trial, he cultivates this sweet trust between himself and the Lord. Later, God leads Elijah to this poor widow named Zarephath. And Elijah goes up to her and is like, hey, lady, I really need some help here. I really need some food. And this woman, this widow, says, oh, I would really love to help you, but sadly, I only have enough flour to make bread one last time for my son and I. So uh, why don't you just leave us alone so we can eat our bread and then we can die in peace? Which, pretty morbid, pretty depressing, and maybe this widow is being a little bit dramatic. 
But if I were in Elijah's shoes, I'd think, oh, you know what? Maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree here. I'll go ask someone else for food. But instead, Elijah doubles down. He says, lady, that sounds like a great plan you and your son have, but just make some bread for me first. And I promise you, our God will provide for us. In fact, I've been praying, and he promised that you will not run out of flour until it rains. And I have some insider information for you. It's not going to rain for a really, really long time. So go ahead and make some bread for us. And so day after day, the woman keeps being able to make this bread. And then as time passes, sadly, her son gets sick. And then her son dies. And this woman starts to wonder, I thought this godly man was praying for me and my son. How did he die? Why did he die? But then God uses Elijah and his prayers to literally raise this boy back to life. And then comes Elijah's prime time moment. He leaves the wilderness, he goes back to Israel's king, and he confronts their prophets. And all of them are worshiping all these different gods, and Elijah challenges them. He says, whoever can call down fire from heaven onto this altar will prove that their God is real. So first all the other prophets start praying to their gods, and nothing happens. And then Elijah starts talking trash to them. He's like, oh, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe that's why I can't hear you. And he's like, okay, well, while you're waiting on him to wake up, why don't you go ahead, get a bucket of water, and douse this altar? Get it soaking wet so that when my God lights it up, you will fear the power of the one true God. And so then Elijah prays, and then a fire from heaven eviscerates the altar. Now the king hears about Elijah, he hears that he's back, and again, he sends out an army to kill him. And this time Elijah flees, but it's in fear. And now he's pouting, and he's whimpering, and he's actually cursing God. Now think with me for a moment, everything Elijah had seen God do at this point. He prayed, and it didn't rain for three years. He prayed, and animals fed him during the drought. He prayed, and he had a never-ending supply of bread. He prayed, and he saw a dead kid raised to life. He prayed, and he saw fire come down from heaven. And yet, here he is, doubting God moments later. And so, that's the context when James says, Elijah has a nature of a man, just like us. He's just like us. It's easy to sit here and wonder, how could you experience everything Elijah experienced and still doubt? But just like Thomas doubted Jesus' resurrection, just like Peter doubted Jesus' divinity, just like all the people in Scripture who constantly doubt God, we get to see we're actually maybe a lot like him. We're quick to forget. We're quick to blame God. We're quick to grow weary in prayer. Elijah held a special place in the hearts of Jews. He did powerful miracles and he denounced sin. But James isn't highlighting that. He's saying, look, Elijah was just like us. And even though he wasn't the most faithful guy, God still used his prayers. And James wants his readers to know, even though you're not always faithful, even though you have sin in your life, if you are a Christian, your prayers are incredibly powerful and it matters it truly matters that you pray 
So like Elijah, pray when you're suffering in the wilderness. Like Elijah, pray when you're joyful and getting to see God provide. Like Elijah, pray when you're in desperate need of healing. Like Elijah, pray even when you see your sin and you are angry with God. Yes, there's an inherent tension that prayer brings. I don't assume to be an expert on prayer. I don't know how the sovereignty of God intersects and meshes with our will. So there's a humility that we need as we approach the mystery of prayer. But the certainty within the mystery is that our God is so, so good to us. And regardless of whether we get the outcome we're praying for or not, what's most important is who we are praying to, not what we are praying for. So even though I never saw a dead person come back to life, I know a person who died and rose again. Even though I've never had an endless supply of bread, I know a person who claimed to be the bread of life. Even though I've never called down fire from the sky, I know a person who called down the Holy Spirit like fire and is living inside each and every Christian. I know Jesus. You know Jesus the object and the affection of our prayers. And because we know him, that's why we pray. So as we end today, the band is going to come on up and they're going to lead us in a time to sing and praise the Lord. And while we do that, we're just going to take a quick moment to remember him. We're going to remember him through communion. In one of the communion accounts in the New Testament, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, I pass to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Communion is a call for us to remember our relationship with Jesus. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, go ahead and dip the bread in the juice and eat. If you're needing gluten-free, we have gluten-free options on my left and your right. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, no pressure to come and take communion at this time. Communion is also a chance for us to honestly look at our life and just ask, is there anything that I need to confess? Is there anything that I need to bring to the light? And so as you're grabbing communion, if you feel led, go ahead and grab someone that's sitting near you. Go ahead and grab someone that you trust and just share with them what's on your heart. And then take some time to pray for one another and just know that anything you're confessing, it has been paid for and dealt with on the cross. I'm going to close with this poem by David Bowden. And this poem is about prayer. And you may have noticed a few sermons recently where we've included aspects of spoken word. And I just want to clarify, we're not doing this as a church because we think it's cool. We do this because, we, <laughs> yeah, sometimes people might think that. But in reality, the reason we're doing this is because we have a creative God. He is so creative and he inspires creativity. And sometimes when we hear the same thing in a fresh way, it inspires our heart to worship. To see that even though our God is the same yesterday and today and forever, 
we're never going to exhaust who he is and all his beauty and all his splendor. And there are more ways to articulate how awesome he is than we can ever imagine. And so these moments where we do something like spoken word or a rap or something that's a little bit more creative, they're all just meant to be fresh ways that can lead our heart to worship. So let me read this poem to you by David Bowden called Prayer. How many times have you prayed in your life? Now, I'm not asking how many lists you've made or religious instructions you've obeyed or games of guilty Christian you've played. No, I'm asking how many times have you prayed? How many times have you cried, whimpered, sighed, whispered, tried to listen, died, and risen? How many times have you approached God honestly? Asking for nothing but got everything, had everything to hide but hid nothing, never said a word out loud but spoke endlessly, never opened your eyes but saw eternity. How many times have you reached inside yourself so deeply you pulled out something you did not recognize? How many times have you approached your maker? Not as who you want to be, not as who you wish you were, not as who you think you are, not as who you ought to be, but just as you are. With all the dirt that covered you when God first fell in love with you. How many times have you run to your lover for passion, your provider for rations, your father for lessons, your instructor for lashings? How many times have you prayed? Because your God's ear waits for one drop of confession, one honest expression, one wild connection. So don't approach the living God with dead prayers. Rather, come to him when your lifeless prayers are dead. And when the spirit on your tongue is revived and dripping with life, then every syllable you speak will be a divine trade. Your mouth will leap with floods of praise. The number you seek will be far too high to be weighed, and you'll never be able to answer the question, how many times have you prayed? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you made a way where there was no way. Thank you that even right now, in this moment, you are here with us, and you delight to hear from your children, Lord. And we just tell you, we love getting to speak with you. We love getting to talk to you. But we can't wait until we get to see you face to face. We can't wait until our faith becomes sight. And you welcome us home, and we get to spend eternity with you. And until that day, until that time, thank you that you've invited us into this romance. Thank you that we actually get to know you and spend time with you and connect with you. Lord, we don't want a spiritual checklist. We don't want to boil things down to do's and don'ts. We want to have a living, breathing relationship with you. And thank you that that's what you invite us into. Thank you that even though we have a nature just like Elijah, that you, you use our prayers. That you invite us to pray and you change the course of eternity and bring redemption into this world through prayers. Lord, thank you that we get to be alongside you in your mission. And thank you that you've adopted us as your children. Lord, we love you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.